Howdy everybody, this is David Sanchez and you are listening to episode 11 of the Riffs or Die podcast for December 8th, 2020. This is the La Special Special. On this episode, I've got all three thirds of the band La Special. I'm sure a lot of you already know this, but in case you don't, they just had a new record come out called Ancient Homies and I got to do the mixing on it. It's out now, you need to go check it out, and in the following episode, you'll hear interviews with all the guys in the band. The first interview is with Luke Beeman, he's the bass player. The second interview is with Rory Dolan, the drummer. And the third interview is with Johnny Grusowskis, the guitar player and vocalist of the band. I had a really good time talking to these guys. And I think you'll enjoy the interviews. We got into some strange territories, and I mean that in the very best possible way. That being said, I'd like to ask for your patience and understanding with the audio. For some reason, Zoom and my audio interfaces really don't like to get along. I need to figure out what the problem is and get it fixed for the future. But the audio quality of these interviews isn't quite up to the standard that I would like for it to be. But when listening back to it, I was able to get over it in about 10 seconds just because the content is good. So I'm hoping that you guys can do the same and please forgive the audio quality of this episode. It's all about the content. I'm really sorry about that, guys, but I'm confident that if you stick through it and rough it a little bit, it'll be well worth it for the content that you're going to hear on this episode. If you'd like to support this podcast beyond just listening and sharing it with your friends, please go to patreon.com slash riffs or die and sign up as a patron. You'll get access to live Zoom calls, handwritten lyrics, discounts on the web store, and bonus episodes of the podcast. This month, I'll be doing two live Zoom hangouts in the spirit of Xmas. So jump on that if you're interested. For all the patrons that are already signed up, thank you very much. You guys are the best. So let's dive into these. Here are my interviews with the gentleman from Le Special. Mr. Luke Beeman on the Riffs or Die podcast from the band Le Special. You play the four-string bass, if I'm not mistaken. I do. Occasionally a five-string fretless, but mostly four. The four-string slash five-string fretless man of Le Special, (laughs) Luke Beeman who just had a new record come out called Ancient Homies. Yeah, man. Where are these homies from? Who are these homies? How old are these homies? Oof. Tough to pin down in the, the space-time continuum, as it were. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, good question. You know, I think that when we started to album names, we have a list, like an iPhone note, much like you have for Havoc, the uh, riff pile folder on your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like a list of stupid names that could be song names or album names. Um, and Ancient Homies was on there. I actually brought it up before our podcast. You want me to read you a couple of them? Yeah. Yeah, please. These are things that either could have become the special album name or absolutely had no chance. They're all, it's an even playing field here. Um, <laughs> Some of them I've got here. The Perfect Day. Uh, Cali Blessings. Shitty Idiot. <laughs> I love Shitty Idiot. Yeah, Shitty Idiot's a good one. Um, remembered Dream. That's one of Rory's. But as I go down, I get into like homies blurring into one and homie numero uno. 
and some of these dumb names that actually made it as like track names. And then Ancient Homie is is down there under like Ghost Beach and Beast from East. We have Ancient Homies. So partially just a stupid song list of names and songs and album titles that we chose. Also, I don't know. I think that I've always liked when bands, like when it can have be dark and kind of, you know, ominous, but not take itself too seriously. I feel like bands like Tool and Primus do that really well with like an album name like Anima, you know? So I kind of like that vibe. That kind of fits with our aesthetic. And so Ancient Homies, at first we were like, no, we can't like actually call the album that. And then it became clear, <laughs> like, no, we definitely have to. So, uh, yeah, it's great. It's a really great record. And congratulations on its release. Thank you, man. The band seems part of it. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. Uh, for those of you listening, you might already know, but I had the pleasure of mixing the Ancient Homies album for these guys. It seems like you guys keep getting bigger and bigger, and more and more people are finding out about you every year. So I'm really hoping that this album does better than all the other ones and is well received. You and me both, buddy. We're stoked to work with Rope Dope Records on this album, whereas our last two albums were mostly just kind of uh, self-released and um, you know having different like publicists and management companies and stuff help. But this is uh, Rope Dope Records, which is cool for us. It's a label that we listened to a lot growing up. Um, artists like Antibalas, Afrobeat Orchestra, DJ Logic, like Medeski Martin and Wood, and bands that like it's a very heavy on like the jazz hip hop. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have a ton of artists. I, I looked up their roster. It, it's very extensive. Yeah, extensive, eclectic. It's wild. Like they put out a here and now playlist that you, you can check out on Spotify. It's like Ropadope's new release playlist, and Snell's Fleet was on there. It was really cool. They put Snell's Fleet as like the first track and like used our picture on it. So that it was an honor to be with some of those other artists because we listened to it and it's dense, man. I mean, it was like West African jazz like really experimental uh like afrobeat and stuff like that um so it, it's eclectic it's all over the place i think there's still a part of us that are like really they wanted this record on there <laughs> but you know uh, there's there's not many like drop d riffs on their um on their other stuff but it's an honor to to be with you know with company like that it's really cool yeah that's great and speaking of afrobeat music yeah. i hear a lot of that influence in you guys' stuff not on all songs but right I hear um, a lot of those kinds of rhythms and those kind of vibes coming through some of the music. Yeah. Do you listen to some of the old stuff, the old Nigerian stuff like Fela Kuti and yeah, big time, man. Fela Kuti, uh, King Sunny Ade. I love King Sunny Ade. <laughs> Me too, man. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. And I found out about King Sunny Ade through Medeski Martin and Wood covering them. Uh, oh, cool. Juju, Juju music, baby. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. He's um, the king of Juju music. Yeah. King I heard Sunny you. Ade, man. I heard he was like actually royalty. Yes. And uh, wanted to make music. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Like he is a king. <laughs> it's pretty, I would love to read a book about him. I got to see the Fela Kuti play on Broadway a few years ago and it was incredible. Oh, I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. It was like short lived or not, you know, maybe a couple weeks or something, but I was really fortunate to go and I totally like went to the gift shop after and bought Fela's biography very interesting life. Have you ever read anything about Fela Kuti's life? No, not at all. It's pretty wild. I, I, I can't, like, I'm not an expert, but um, if anyone's interested in the music, it's definitely worth checking out. I mean, he was like an outlaw, was like in and out of prison, and was like revolutionizing music during all of it. 
But Fela Kuti is definitely huge for us. We all kind of grew up drumming and studying drumming. And with Charlie Kyle is a professor that Johnny works with a lot and stuff. And so we would get together on Sundays and drum and do like chanting and kind of stuff like that, like songas. So I think that just percussive elements we're all about. And then just seeing like how many of those layers we can integrate with three people, you know, you see like Johnny will have like two guitar loops and like a lead going on it. And, you know, Rory will try and play as many parts as his limbs allow. But we have a cover of Fela's tune Zombie, actually. called We call Harambe Zombie. <laughs> we did, it, was, it came out of like a Halloween thing. Rory went as Harambe when, when, when Harambe was popping. And um, so we did like, it's our arrangement of it, but we kind of took like the sax melody and then did like a unison riff over like a halftime kind of like sludge beat you know <laughs> like tried to uh, strip it down and specialify it but um so, zombify yeah. it yeah exactly exactly but so yeah totally i mean to answer your question they're they're a big influence for sure yeah you guys have some really crazy drumming speaking of rory's limbs going and doing <laughs> as much as they can there's some really wild drums on the record yeah but, but really all three of you guys have shining moments on the album Speaking of Johnny doing his overdubbing and looping, and then you have some really crazy bass parts. Your bass tone on some of these songs is so killer. Thank Did you, you for use... making that happen too, man. <laughs> I, I just took what you gave me and polished it. Right. But, um, you know, the main bass sound on like Snell's or Tumberry. Is that just straight bass or is that running through a special preamp or something? Yeah, you know, what's funny is those were with two different tracks, you know, Fleet was one of the first tracks that we recorded. And I did that with this old Carvin bass. It was a, a custom bass I had bought from an engineer we worked with on the Ceremony EP. And I don't know, I've had it forever. And it was like this Swamp Ash light bass that just has this killer gritty tone. And I love playing with a pick on it. And so like Snell's fleet was written on that bass and was very picky, kind of like Justin Chancellor tool inspired. But like when we got to the studio, it was at Potterville International Sound, like the engineer was very kind of like in his own ways. He records a lot of jazz and stuff there. And I was like, yeah, I got like my Mesa uh, head and, you know, like I, you know, I bass and I got I, pedals and stuff. And, and he's like, nah, man, like you're using this what acoustic old school amp head. <laughs> and I'm like, eh, really? <laughs> and, You're um, using this stand-up bass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Snell's fleet on a stand-up bass. That would be hard. Uh, <laughs> but so, you know, I was kind of like, okay, you know, sure. Hey, you're, you're the engineer here. I'll, I'll go. You know, I'm not going to be difficult about it. Let's try it. Um, and I ended up, to, I, I was cool with it. I liked the tone. It wasn't like my favorite. I, I was different than what I was used to. And that was even with Snell's fleet. We we're like, yeah, okay, we, we got that recording and we felt okay about it. And it wasn't until we sent it to you and got that first mix down and we were like, oh shit, this sounds way fucking better than we thought it did and really gave it like the punchiness and heaviness that it needed. And it brought my bass to a new level too. So that one, I definitely have to shout you out on. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah. Like I said, all I did was polish what you guys gave me. Um, yeah, well, you know, the capturing of, of the recording is probably the most important thing other than the, the mixing, obviously. Things can be captured beautifully and ruined in the mix. Well, that's it's something interesting that we've talked about on this album because obviously you mix this whole album remotely and, you know, we weren't in like a mixing room together. But um, we kind of realized like, we, hey, we don't have to just be in one studio for weeks at a time. Like we recorded different tracks in different studios and different home studios. 
and having somebody remote mix it and you being able to make everything sound like clear and cohesive. Um, that was cool. And it almost was kind of a like, Hey, a light bulb moment for us. We're like, we don't have to go to a studio necessarily and spend all that money and be on that time crunch. Like you can do a lot with an interface in your fucking studio, your bedroom or whatever. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, and but, I, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to, and then I was going to say, but Tonberry was kind of the exact opposite. That was the one where we did it like the Neve console, you know, and, and I used um, my new Blood Moon bass on that. Shout out MBJ Guitars, who built me this incredible bass. So that bass, I was, I was happy with. And he, but even that, like, yeah, I mean, you got them, they sound similar. To me, they don't sound like different basses. So yeah, it, it was really cool to witness like that kind of cohesion coming to life in the mixing process. Yeah, it was not the easiest mixing job I ever had, but <laughs> but I had a good time and and we exchanged a lot of text messages and phone calls between everybody yes. in the band. But that's to be expected with a bunch of recordings that were done in different places and working remotely. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about how the songs come together. Now, do you guys does like one of you write an entire song or do you guys just have a riff here and there and you guys all get together and hammer it out or is it spontaneous and comes together jamming in a room? Right. Well, our writing process is very collaborative and like organic. It's not a whole lot of somebody bringing in a song and then, Hey, here's the song. Everyone brings in ideas, and then it's very much like an open playing field. We allow space for everybody to, you know, integrate their voice or their riffs or their compositional chops or whatever. Um, the song is never really done or even begun. It's never even started, really, until the three of us are in a room playing the music live. Now, that's kind of been our, like, how we've always written together. Songs can take completely different forms. We can constantly add stuff. I mean, you know our music, man. It's not like verse, chorus, verse. I mean, some of these songs are like eight minutes and have tons of different sections. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, to quote like Tool again, I like the concept of taking a simple idea and seeing how many different permutations you can kind of like attach it to and how many different avenues can you explore with one idea. And, you know, maybe it's just a riff and maybe the riff, you go from a bass line playing like a bass counterpoint melody over it, or maybe you play it unison just seeing how many different polyrhythms and ideas you can come up with, but starting small and then expanding to take it wherever the fuck it wants to go, I guess. Sure. So, yeah, so it's pretty organic for us. But then there was some stuff on this record that was more like Repeater is a song that was straight like a Johnny G demo that we never played live. And so we got to experiment with just recording different parts and sending them back and forth to each other. So that was something new that we did on this album that I can see us doing more of in the future. Working remotely and everyone just adding on their own touch. Yeah, man. I mean, this is, you know, this is Zoom life we're living now. So, I mean, we might as well fucking <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> we're in it for the long haul, right? Yeah, for sure we are. Yeah, it's crazy how many people and businesses are realizing, oh, shit, we don't need to have a physical place to do this stuff. People yeah. can work from wherever and still get the job done. The world is, I think, going to change in that way, possibly for the better, because then people can you know, do computer work or whatever all day and uh, kind of live wherever they want. Real quick, do you have a favorite song on the record? Yeah, I've gone back and forth, you know. I feel like Repeater is probably my favorite, maybe because we've never played it live and because it just kind of came together so naturally and spontaneously and just different writing techniques led it to become a completely different song than if we had wrote it together. But I'm also really stoked on Tonberry. 
that track when I first started writing it with just kind of bass riffs in my basement to like see where it came and the sonic level that you brought it to. I make cry when I'm driving my Honda CRV around blasting it. But I guess <laughs> the middle of that song is super cool when it hits that kind of evil Afro dubby thing in the middle, that bass line. It's yeah. super, super cool. I love that part. The kind of four to the floor, more yes. like breakdown. Yeah, that's um, that's a dope part. Rory's crushing that. I love his Twilight Zone samples. Johnny with the digi. That that's totally an example of like I never wrote the song with that part. That just totally became organic. And that part's always really bumping live, but the studio version of it uh, really knocks. It sounds great. Oh yeah, I love it. It's a really really cool song. And did you write any of the lyrics for this record? No, no, that's all all Johnny, really. The only song that I've really written like lyrics for is American Apocalypse, which was on Cheen, a song called Optimus Prime Slot that was on OmniSquid. Um, it's not really my forte. It's difficult for me. I love to write, but lyrics have always kind of been difficult for me. But yeah, Johnny has really unique, cool lyrics. Those two songs that you did write, though, are classics. I love both <laughs> of those tracks. Cool, thank you. Some of my favorite special songs. Yeah, I need to work at it more. I need to order some David Sanchez handwritten Havoc lyrics and fucking taking a page out of your book, buddy. <laughs> I love yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually working on some of them right now and they are all completely unique and I doodle on them and just make them special. It's not just me scribbling out the song. Yeah, that's awesome. That is such a cool perk. I really love that idea of handwritten lyrics, especially when they're good. <laughs> well, thanks. Um just trying to get the ideas out of my head into a song format. Cause I don't want to sing about zombies or the devil. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's all I want to sing about. <laughs> we'll leave that to the ancient homies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for taking some time out of your day to chat with me, man. I really appreciate it. And I really love your record and I'm urging everyone to go and check out ancient homies from the special yeah. show your friends. Yes. Show your friends. Um, well, appreciate you, David. You made this album sound incredible and it's an honor to be on the Rips or Die podcast, buddy. I fucking love this show. I listen to every episode. So shout out to all your listeners, man. The show's awesome. Hell yeah. Thanks, Luke. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap it? Just, you know, take care of your ancient homies out there, y'all. That's it. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. Thanks again, Dave. Really appreciate it, man. Rory Dolan, the drummer of La Special, is on the drums and the glockenspiel. That's right. Primarily uh, glockenspiel, actually. It's my primary. <laughs> yeah, you have some crazy drums on this record. I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. because uh, I was thinking about some of the drum parts in some of these songs before we did this talk, and there's a lot of really cool ones, but I wanted to ask you personally, if you have a favorite drum part, on the ancient homies record i think i'm kind of you know inclined to go with the progier heavier things in general so i would probably have to say tonberry although snell's is probably a close second yeah i'd say tonberry some great drums in that song and i really love the sound of the drums on that song Mm -hmm. that's the one that you guys tracked in a really nice studio with a insane recording console the Neve, the Neve console. Yeah, it, you can hear a difference. Uh, I, I can, anyways. A lot more air and space, it seems, in the tracks. You're able to get like a lot of room mics going for that, which I'm a big fan of that roomy sound. So oh, yeah. Power, and obviously, 
your caressing of the mix, uh, you know, really, it's like, so I'm so happy with that drum mix. It's great. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thanks for letting me do it. I, I like massaging sounds into a better form. Sound caressa. <laughs> yeah, I'm not an audio engineer. I'm a sound caresser. Sound caresser. Yeah, you know, I love that mix so much because it reminds me so much of like a tool drum mix. And obviously, we were talking about that during the mixing notes. Those are some of my favorite tones, you know, from like pretty much all those records. Yeah, for sure. The only way it could get much more tooly is if you turn all the snares off of your snare drum. That's right. I actually have that snare drum too. I have Danny's Danny's signature eight inch deep snare drum. Oh, cool. Who makes that? Uh, Sonar. It's discontinued. They made it for a couple of years. I'm pretty sure it's bronze. It's pretty heavy, eight inches deep. And um, it's a pretty fat snare. It's pretty awesome. I actually use it as a side snare a lot of the time. Sweet. Yeah, I, I didn't know that he had a signature snare drum. That's really cool. Not like he uses it anymore. They just kind of produced it for a little while. I think he like plays like a different custom one now. But Yeah, that, a guy like that can play anything he wants. I bet Pete would know which snare drum he plays now. <laughs> yeah, probably. Ah. And uh, I learned a really, really valuable trick from you, you guys had sent me a video because you tracked the snare drum without a snare bottom mic. Right. And you guys sent me a video of what you were doing to um, compensate for not having a snare bottom mic on the recording. Mm -hmm. And you took the snare top sound and, and just soloed that and threw it through the speakers and you had it sent directly toward the top of a snare drum with a mic on the bottom of this snare drum. So you were like doing a, almost like what you would do with reamping with a guitar, but you were doing it with the snare drum. You were re-snaring the snare drum. Right, exactly, reamping. Yeah, I can't take any credit for that. It was um, the engineer James Hendrix's idea about that. I had never heard of it. I was open to it. I was like, yeah, sure. You get a lot of bleed from snare bottom, so why not try something else? Yeah, it actually worked out really great, and I actually had Pete bring over one of his snare drums and I did that exact same thing for one of the songs on your record. Nice. Hell yeah. Which one was that? It was, I think it was for Snells. Cool. To give a little more like uh, just crack to the snare. Yeah, for sure. And snare bottom, I typically only have it very, very subtly in there, but it makes a big difference with the perceived crack of the snare drum, like how snappy and, and, yeah. uh, you know, lightning strike-ish, it sounds. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. It's a huge difference. I've been experimenting with mixing at home and just kind of like getting rough recordings. And I've done that a couple times. Go, okay, snare bottom, no snare bottom. And just having that little bit of it, like you said, is just makes all the difference. Yeah, even if it's like 20 dB quieter than the top, it makes a difference in the uh, perceived brightness of the drum. For sure. Yeah, I love those those tones on that. I think that snare on, um, let's see, the snare on Snells would have been like a five and a half brass snare by this company, Wahlberg and Auge. They're an old drum company for mass. Uh -huh. I've never heard of that, but I love brass snare drums. They always sound huge. Yeah, they really cut through. Yeah, they're super heavy. A lot of metal guys use brass snare drums just because it cuts through everything. There's no jazzy sound to it. It just crushes Absolutely. Hell yeah. <laughs> you use some Octobonds on some of these songs. 
for people listening that don't know what an octobon is, it's the drum that's kind of shaped like a tennis ball can. Yeah, like a tube tom, it's also called. Or Bill Bill Bruford would say uh, a boom bam. He called them boom bams. Boom bams. Boom bam. Yeah, it's like a Pringles can. Tom drum. Kind <laughs> of Pringles cans. That'd be kind of tight. <laughs> but yeah, I love the octobons, man. You know, I got to credit like Herb, Tim Alexander for hitting me to those when I was in high school, you know? Of See, course. And, you know, he got it from Bill Bruford. So, you know, then you trace it back to there. And then like Stuart Copeland, all those dudes using them. Uh, all the engineers always call them rototoms. I'm not really sure why. Really yeah, rototoms are different. You don't look anything like a rototom. Everyone just gets them so uh, confused. It's pretty funny. But I love them both. Those octobons have a really cool sound. Yeah, they do. Rototoms do as well. I love the sound of rototoms. Especially the bigger ones you can use as like kind of floor tomish vibe, like a floor. Oh yeah, the rare eighteen, because uh, they made a whole set of them back in the day, like all oh, six to twenty or something. You know what I mean? Six inches to twenty inches. Mm-hmm. Crazy. But yeah, I have a set of low ones that are pretty dope. If you tune them down, and you just kind of use them as like a floor tom or bass drum vibe, you know? Yeah, that's super cool. Now, I can hear a lot of Tim Alexander influence in your playing and Danny Carey, mm-hmm. but who are some other drummers that you look up to? Because you have a very interesting drum style. It's often very creative, and you're doing things that I would never think of doing on drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I came from like a place of, of like a lot of heavy music when I was younger. I mean, it started with like, kind of a generic like a Beatles influence for my parents and that was the first thing I really loved when I was a kid I would just like bash this toy drum set to Beatles tapes until it like the drum set broke and then they were like well I guess we got to buy you something else right so I got like a Pearl Forum that I would play on for years and yeah playing to records like from the Beatles it went to like the new metal phase you know it's like a lot of corn and Limp Biscuit and then Slipknot mm-hmm. so, into horror movies as a kid like old horror movies old like universal monster movies so i think i gravitated towards slipknot for the mask you know wearing sure theatricality right so that heavy music is kind of where it started to go in the direction like listening to slipknot system of a down going to Ozfest, that kind of stuff that led to tool and all those heavy bands and then that kind of split everything wide open that led to primus and then being interested in jazz and so then Some of those other influences you're talking about, I'd have to give credit to this drummer, Billy Martin, from the trio Modesky, Martin, and Wood. Yeah. Huge huge influence on me as a young boy. Just kind of like opening my ears up to jazz and the possibilities of like playing different cultural music styles, be it Brazilian or Cuban or, you know, African. So a lot of that stuff has informed my style in a way that is very, just like throughout the years, just picking up little things along the way, you know? Yeah, one little trick can completely alter a drum beat and make it something totally different. Right. Or just kind of infusing something. <clears throat> things you might not think about mixing and mix them up. But then, you know, Billy Martin is a huge one, especially on just opening up my mind to different sonic possibilities and approaches to the drum set, almost approaching it more as a percussionist who, you know, drum set is just one of the things that you play. So not being afraid to like, grab different percussion instruments, grab a shaker in one hand, play with some mallets, put some different kinds of things in the drums to alter their tone, kind of prepared percussion approach. So big influence on me as a young musician and still to this day. 
other people that are really big influences. Matt Chamberlain, he's a session legend who has played with tons and tons of different people. You know, everything from Bowie, David Bowie, to like Kanye, to um, A Perfect Circle. Like he's just a session guy who's played on thousands of, of records. But his band Critters Buggin, that was the name of his band in the 90s that he had with a couple other guys from Seattle. You may know Skerrick, the saxophone player who plays with Les Claypool's solo projects. And my friend Mike Dillon, the percussionist, um, those guys are both in Critters Buggin. And if you haven't checked out Critters Buggin, you need to, because that music is just so gnarly. And Matt's playing. He's just a mad scientist of a drummer and gets the coolest tone out of the drums, has the nicest sense of touch. And um, yeah, interestingly enough, one of my favorite Chamberlain records is actually a Fiona Apple record that he plays on called When the Pawn. And uh, if you haven't checked out that record... It's just like a drummer's dream. It's, it's Tone City. So check out that record. Check out Matt Chamberlain. Other guys I can't fail to mention would be John Theodore from the Mars Volta. His playing on those first couple records when he was in the band just you know blew me away when I heard it and was super big for us as a band, actually, because when we got together in like 2005, it was right around the time that that second record, Francis the Mute, came out, and we were able to see them on those tours. And uh, yeah, John is just a massive influence on me, for sure, on all of us. We love him. Let's see, Alan Rubin from Nine Inch Nails, uh, more of a, a modern choice. He's just a tour de force, and uh, yeah, he's just crazy. Love him. Got to catch them last two years ago when they came around. And uh, yeah, man, what a drummer. Josh Fries, also Nin alum, was huge for me as a young drummer. Other guys, Matt Garska from Animals as Leaders. Actually had a couple classes with him at Berkeley. He is just totally insane. Let's see, who else? Uh, the guy from Gojira. Got to see them last summer with Slipknot. And uh, that was really great. And I've uh, been listening to them ever since. And, you know, I can't not mention Bill Bruford and um, Mr. Neil Peart from Rush, who uh, are just kind of massive influences on me. Probably because, or not probably, but definitely because of my initial love of Primus and Tool. Because I knew about Primus and Tool way before I knew about King Crimson or Rush or any of the other bands that influenced you know, Primus and Tool and their drummers. So getting back to the root of those influences and getting to the source material is like hugely influential and informative and a kind of a concept that I try to apply in a lot of different areas. There is no fruit without the root. So you go back to whatever the core influence was for something or for someone, for a band. You know, you break Primus down into a couple of different elements. Obviously, it's a generalization because they are very uniquely their own thing. But you realize that, hey, they were listening to... King Crimson and uh, Rush and The Police and The Residence and Ecstasy and uh, Peter Gabriel, things like that. And when you go back and listen to all those, those different elements, you're like, okay, this makes a little more sense now. So that was hugely informative for me, going back, tracing their influences back and getting to the root of, of what it's all about, you know, if that makes any sense. Newer guys that are around now, guys like Lewis Cole, or like Mark Juliana, Nate Wood, that kind of like, or Zach Danziger. I don't know if you know any of those guys. I sent you that track. Um, it was a reference for one of the homie tracks, Homie 2, I believe. It's Mark Juliana tracks, kind of dubby. Kind yeah. Of, yeah, you remember that one, right? Yeah. So I love that style. I love that kind of 
you know, they call it beat music or it's kind of like, I, you know, in my mind, it's kind of future. It's mixing a lot of that kind of pseudo drum and bass and kind of jazz sensibility. You know what I mean? Right. There's a guy, a piano player that just sprung to mind when you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name is Cameron Graves. Okay. And he's an insane piano player. And the drummer, whoever the hell played drums on his record, is uh, absolutely phenomenal. I'll have to send you a link to this record. You got to check it out. And production-wise, it sounds like the drums were captured much like old jazz records. It sounds like there's just a kick and a snare drum mic and then overheads. It doesn't sound like any of the toms are close mic Gotcha. I have to check that out. I haven't heard of him. Yeah, I'll send it to you after we're done uh, wrapping this thing up. <clears throat> Another like two things to mention that were like non-drumming influences that are really huge is like um, you know like stuff like Aphex Twin. When I first heard it and wanted to like start trying to like I still can't really do this, but trying to like reverse engineer things like that or like someone like Jay Dilla. Like you hear something that wasn't really. Maybe it's sample based or maybe it's um, sequenced or done on a, a synth or a computer or whatever, but you're trying to play it on an acoustic kit. That okay. kind of really interests me and in, like trying to do that in the sense of like, okay, if you're not going to play an electronic pad, you try to come up with textures and sounds, layering things on the kit to create those same sounds, you know, organically. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> Reverse engineering uh, music from another style that's got synthetic sounds and make it all acoustic. I, there's a lot of really cool covers that bands have done like that. There's some of these bluegrass bands and stuff that'll cover like rock songs from the eighties. Mm-hmm. It's cool to hear like the more authentic flavor on things sometimes. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Latin music and African music and obviously both of those flavors have, they're known for having great rhythms right. and uh, great beats I was talking with Luke yesterday about King Sonny Ade and Fela Kuti. Oh, yeah. And I could definitely hear some of that influence in you guys' music. One of the things I really love about La Special is you guys are hard to pin down. When people ask me what you guys sound like, I tell them, kind of just have to listen. <laughs> I love that. I heard you said that on a, a recent podcast. The one that I was listening to, like, I can't remember which episode, but you were saying that. I was like, yes, that's exactly what I try to tell people, you know? They want they want a genre. You're like, yeah, I can't really give you one. Yeah, I, I have to rattle off, like, a dozen genres to kind of get the point across. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think that's, like, it's not a bad thing. People, people should just kind of tune in and see what they think, you know what I mean? For sure. A couple of questions that I asked all the other guys, all both of them, uh, <laughs> was who are these homies? Where did these homies come from? And how ancient are these homies? Quite ancient indeed. Uh, wait, what the first part is, who are these homies? Who are the homies and where did they come from? Who, where, and why? Uh, <laughs> well, the homies, I mean, you know, this is kind of open in, to interpretation, right? Everyone can kind of make their own... Um, version of ancient homies but to me it's you know for it's like kind of like the three of us we've known each other forever uh we've been a band for 15 plus years uh luke and i been playing together before that we met at summer camp in fifth grade i was singing on the picnic table it was like say what karaoke day on friday like i mentioned the limp biscuit phase and i was fred durst like singing like a fake mic or whatever and we, 
We became instant friends. We both had like bleach blonde tipped hair or whatever. Yep. It was a whole phase. And so we've been tight ever since then. We've been playing music with each other ever since then. We linked up with John a couple of years after that. And um, yeah, so that's kind of my interpretation is it's us. And it's also all the people that have been along for the ride with us that time. You know what I mean? All our closest friends and people that have kind of hung on for the ride. It's great. I didn't know you guys had been around for 15 years, man. That's wild. Well, it's like, you know, high school was 15 years ago. You know what I mean? So it's like, you're still kind of getting your shit together, but yeah, the special as a band since then. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's really cool. And I like that you guys are, you know, the same three dudes in the band. It seems the whole time. And, uh, that's a hard thing to find. It's pretty rare, but mm-hmm. it seems to be more common with a trio than with a band that has four or five, six people in it. What you mean for sure. It's hard to, yeah, there's like, there's so much space to fill for each member in a trio. And yeah, and every voice, musical voice in a trio is so crucially important to the sound of the whole because such a huge chunk of the whole puzzle. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, Rush never had any other members, right? So mm-hmm. it was always the same three guys. Well, in the very beginning, they had a different drummer who left like after the first album, John Rutsey. Ah, uh, that's right. Both rest in peace. They're him and Neil are partying right now. But you know, like he was that was the first album I think with Working Man on it, whatever that album is. Mm-hmm. Fly by Night. Fly by Night was Neil's first record. Yeah, it's it's the one that's like a little more straightforward rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, they couldn't have had another member. That's a good example, you know. They, that never would have worked, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and Primus, I mean, two of the three guys have been in there the whole time. Right, that's a little bit different, only because Les is kind of like, yeah, you know, I can kind of change the drummer if I want to. And it's different eras of the band, which I, I respect all of them, but Herb is definitely my favorite Primus drummer. I love all of them, though, for different reasons. But that's actually an interesting example, because that can work with like switching up the drummer. Well, if there's one musical instrument where it's the hardest to tell who's playing it, it's got to be the drums, because the drums is not melodic, and the nuance is so different versus like a guitar or a bass or a vocal. You can swap out a drummer, I think, without people noticing too much. But when you really start to dive in and become familiar with certain players, you can hear the difference. Like I can hear the difference between Brain and Tim Alexander and uh, what's the other dude? Jay Lane. Jay Lane. Yeah, I can hear the difference between them. And uh that record, that Primus record, Green Naga Hide, that Jay Lane came back for, I, I love the drums on that record. And I got to see them once with him drumming, nice. and it was amazing. Yeah, man. Yeah, we uh, we saw a couple shows on that tour. There was, I mean, that was a great era of the band, and I love Jay Ski, by the way. His drumming outside of Primus is fantastic as well, with like the Frog Brigade, and he's played with a ton of people. Charlie Hunter, like in the very beginning of his career, they're Bay Area guys. Bay Area homies. But um, yeah, I love Jay's drumming and he brought a different energy to the group. You know, he's like a real happy, like go lucky, like uppity dude. And it's just a different vibe. You know what I mean? As well as a different style. Yeah, he, he fills a lot of the air, especially live playing some of the other stuff that he's not on the records for. I noticed he fills the air with so many like ghost notes and little tip of the stick hits on the hi-hat. And he's just constantly like improvising, filling the air and having fun, getting more music out of the hi-hat than 99% of drummers. 
hi hat work is insane. It's like become a point of it's like almost kind of funny to us now. It's like he's going on the hi hat again, but yeah, it's crazy. It's great. Yeah, it's super cool. And I hear some of that in your drumming as well. You do a lot of really cool hi hat work and have great control over the feel of that symbol in particular. Nice. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that actually come to think of it is probably from listening to Jay. I do love that style for sure. Hell yes. And I have to ask, on the record, it sounds like there's two different floor toms. What are the sizes of those drums? The drums, let's see. So the primary floor tom is just a 16 by 16. It's a, a Tama, like Birch Bubinga drum. Nice. So standard floor tom, right? It's tuned pretty low. And then I have like a, um, it's kind of like a pseudo gong drum that I, it's a children's kick drum that I took like one head off of it or whatever for like a toy drum set kind of thing. Yeah. Snare stand and it's got a, it's got just like a floor tom head on it, like a clear emperor and it's tuned pretty low anyway, but that drum doesn't even stay in tune very well. So you just kind of like get it barely on there. And yeah, that's just like kind of gong drum vibe. (laughs) Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. With the concert tom kind of thing going on. And like putting the mic kind of underneath it and kind of in the middle. So it's like, boom, it's really powerful when you mic it up. It's great. Uh, Ideally, I would love to get like a legit gong drum or one of those pancake gong drums. They work pretty well and they're not even as big. Yeah, it's way better for, you know, loading up and (laughs) having to tour with it. Like everything, you know, better for everything. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Buddy. Well, before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you want to say to the people out here? Uh, well, you know, homies ancient and new, just hang in there. You know, we are still cooking, making music for all you wonderful folks. And, um, and just want to thank you for your continued support and love. And, uh, we're going to keep this train rolling and come out even stronger in the end of whatever all this stuff is right now. Beautiful sentiment. I just got one last question for you, I guess, before we go. Favorite song on the record? Oh, uh, you asked me, I, I said Tom Barry. Oh, that was favorite drums. Do you have a favorite song as a whole? Right, I got you. Sorry, sorry. Oh, it's, yeah, I mean, hmm, okay. I guess I would probably say Repeater because um, I just love that song. Like when Johnny showed it to us, it's one of those songs that kind of gets stuck in your head and it's a nice vocal track on the record. And I just like the way it came together pretty organically and like starting as a demo and then we kind of tracked some things here and there for it and it came together kind of as one of the last things that was ready for the record as well. So in my mind, it's pretty fresh. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's fresh and it's a nice welcome breather in the record. Yeah, exactly. It's a really good vibe. It kind of got that kind of Radiohead vibe for me, which I love. So Repeater and Tom Barry are probably my favorite tracks. Drums aside, just as the whole thing, I think it just knocks. Hell yeah. That's interesting. Luke said that Repeater was his favorite as well. There you go. (laughs) So there you go. Right on, Rory. Thanks a lot for taking the time out of your day. Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be on this. Can't wait to uh, to hear it all together and catch up on the other episodes I haven't heard yet. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the infamous Johnny G on the podcast here with me. Johnny G from La Special. He's a vocalist, keyboard, guitar man. How do you pronounce your last name? Grusowskis. Grusowskis. Nailed it. First try. Well, to me, you're always going to be Johnny G. That, that's why I'm Johnny G, because people have to ask how to pronounce the name. Fair enough. I'm one of those people. See, I'm just a regular guy. I'm first try. <laughs> people don't. <laughs> well, I, I went straight to the source, so 
Your new record, Ancient Homies, is out now. People can go stream it on Spotify or YouTube, Napster, <laughs> wherever people get music today. Ah, uh, Morpheus, Soulseek. Beautiful. And it's you guys' first release that came out on a label, am I correct? Um, the last one was on Techni Records, but that was really just like our manager at the time in his like garage. So, yes, I think it's fair to say that this release with Rope Dope Records is our first legit label release. Yes. Hell yeah. Congratulations. Thank you so much, man. You're, you're no stranger to that. I know. Yeah, but even at that, it's still really exciting. It's like having a, a child, you know? You're having like a musical baby unleashing it on the world. Earth, this sonic thing. Sonic Babies. That's a good <laughs> band name, actually. It is. It's a good image. The records are just bands birthing sonic children across the <laughs> the record's really good and I, I had a great time mixing it i wanted to ask you because you guys typically have some very cool lyrics and i understand that you are the lyrics man most of the time luke wrote a badass song on the last record called american apocalypse oh yes cool rhyming schemes and uh imagery and we were talking the other night on an interview, like we like to paint pictures. Like you're a Mars Volta guy, right? You're into the Mars Volta. Yeah. I, I haven't listened to any of their records all the way through, but I've heard them. They're cool. We like how he, Cedric paints. He doesn't write like explicit literal lyrics all the time, but he paints pictures and environments and atmospheres and just kind of imagery. And so Luke's song, American Apocalypse is a uh, pretty badass painting, but yeah, typically I write the lyrics. Yep. I really like the lyrics on this record. One of the songs, Boundary Dissolution, has a great Terrence McKenna quote in it. And I wanted to ask you about the lyrics in that song. Is that song about psychedelics? Is it about Terrence McKenna? What triggered that song to become a thing? Uh, I was on acid and my manager sent me uh, this track and I was out in the woods and I listened to this cool track by Alan Raymond called uh, Shit. I'll have to get back to you on what it's called. I think it's called Repeat by Alan Raymond, which is funny because we have a track called Repeater on this record. Mm -hmm. And it was just so inspiring and like these textures and filtered drums and just, I like rode my bike straight home and got in the studio and I just had this image. Okay, I'm on stage with a band. This is our first song. It's just like a light, a spotlight on the piano player sitting with a mic. What's this song going to be? And I just started doing like this simple F minor thing, whatever. But that was, yeah, the impetus was him. And, you know, I'm not some big acid head or something. This is the last time I've taken LSD. It was in 2016, I think. And it was the first time I had taken it in quite a few years or a couple of years. But that was the impetus. He kind of sent me this track and it just inspired me so much. Like, I can, I can try to make something like this. Um, and it just slowly evolved. Super cool. I really like that song. It's got a really interesting vibe, as do a lot of the tracks on the record, honestly. It's a very eclectic record. It doesn't sound like you're listening to the same sound the whole time, you know? Thank you so much, man. I'm glad you like it. I'm a huge fan of your music, obviously. So if it clicks with you, that's mission accomplished. I think it'll click with a lot of people that are into heavy stuff. There's some songs on the record that are not so heavy, but there is a good amount of chunky stuff on there. Yeah, we like the metal. Boundary, I guess, is the one, one of the exceptions to that. It's more of a pillowy kind of vibey track but yeah it's it's not so pillowy though it's um 
it's got thorns coming out of the pillow. It's pretty dark and moody. It's one of my favorite tracks on the record. So much. We had an old mix of that too, and you really revived it and gave it that punch and those thorns, so to speak. So thank you. Yeah, man. I had a pleasure doing the mixing. It was uh, a lot of work to try to get so many different source sounds to sound cohesive. But thank God I have some of the tools that really helped make that happen. Tell us about your tools, Dave. My tools. I've got some really great plugins, EQ plugins and stuff that will do a reading like uh, of a different source sound and then take your sound you're trying to modify and get it pretty close. They call it EQ matching. You can EQ match something, get it pretty ballpark close to another sound that you're trying to go for. That came in handy a lot on this record. Also, the Isotope plugin RX, you're able to really clean up audio that has like some clipping in it or if there's some weird hum or a buzz or whatever, you you can clean all of that stuff up in Isotope RX. It's really amazing. The first time I ever saw that plugin in action, I thought it was like magic. You can take severely degraded audio and make it sound totally clean. Wow. I've heard of reverb plugins where you can like clap in a room and it will like read the response of the room and try to like emulate and make a reverb that sounds like that. Yeah. They call those kinds of algorithms. They call them IRs. Uh It's impulse response. Impulse response. Yeah. So a lot of people like to make their own IRs and that same method of thought can apply to guitar speakers, like cabinets and stuff. You can make your own impulse responses for different speakers different room reverbs. Wow. It's useful in a lot of ways. I've never done it myself, but I would love to learn how to do that. It's amazing that we walk around with a thing in our pocket that is like more powerful than what the Beatles had like to produce their records. Like we have such crazy plugins, like you've referred to them as magic before some of the plugins you have. Yes. Yeah, they really are. And everyone, like you said, we've all got a supercomputer in our pocket. Totally. I mean, I'm in Hawaii right now, and you are in Connecticut or New York? Yeah, New York, right on the border. Yeah, and we're talking practically instantaneously. Going to space first. Yeah. (laughs) Wild time we live in. We're super lucky to live when and where we do. Oh, got to remind yourself every day how lucky we are. I mean, we could have been born in the wet 1600 poverty in ireland in some little town and you know starving you could have been born there are so many other zones of human existence that we could have spawned in so to speak if you think of it as a video game um yep have been some paramecium that has to look over its shoulder every day because it's gonna gonna get eaten you know has no chance to survive we are we are lushly wealthy uh humans like to be middle class uh, working musicians who enjoy you know a shelter overhead it's it's pretty awesome life Yeah, we're very spoiled. Even with just the way we're able to communicate and travel is unfathomable to people, you know, 500 years ago. If you showed an airplane or a a helicopter to someone 500 years ago, their head would have exploded. (laughs) Totally. And I think about how that might be out of sync with evolution. It it might feel empty for some people to, uh, like, I know the album OK Computer, Tom York, Radiohead, it was largely informed by the emptiness he felt from just travel like that song let down it's just like tram lines motorways 
train lines, starting and then stopping, the emptiest of feelings. And then I remember a, a documentary about Alan Goldsworthy, the artist, and he said when he would fly to a country to do an art piece, he couldn't just start working right away. He had to give himself a couple of days to sort of ground and feel the earth under his feet and sort of get magnetized to that zone. Sorry, I got really high before this interview. Oh, no, you're speaking very <laughs> eloquently. I think maybe it's helping. <laughs> it's something to think about. Like you said, yeah, the ability for us to travel overseas quickly and change our you know, longitude and latitude so quickly is something we shouldn't take for granted and something we should kind of question a little bit and how it might affect our psyche, maybe. Yeah. I mean, things are definitely much more fast paced than they were back in the day. People had time, so they took their time. <laughs> also, there was just no possibility of things moving super quickly. People didn't have email, didn't have a, a phone to call people. Not very long ago, a couple hundred years ago, yeah. There, there was no radio, there's no recorded music, there's no movies, there's no pictures. So I have two questions for you. Or first one's a comment. But in what regards to what you're saying, but they still felt that they were at the precipice of humanity and they still looked back and said, Oh, look at those silly hundred years ago, they didn't have trains, or you know, they still thought they were the top of the pyramid, which they were. Like when the train came out, oh my god, they must have thought they were it was like the equivalent of the internet today. So my question for you is, in 20 years, what are people going to be saying about 2020? Oh, they didn't have this. They, they didn't have the internet in their brain. They didn't have their brain hooked up to a computer. Interface, Neuralink. That's what I think, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> in the Black Mirror, I must have asked you this. Uh, I've seen a handful of episodes of it. It's good. I think it's really interesting that the main writer of it said he's not going to write anymore because what's happening in the real world is already freaky enough. So just pay attention to what's going on. And it's already scarier than anything he could write. <laughs> that's pretty alarming. That is dark. I mean, he says that in the writing room, they know they're onto something good when everyone in the room is like, Oh, that's dark. But a couple of episodes deal with what you just said. Like the computer is like in your neck. It's like this little device. And there's mm -hmm. Episode where this lady talks about how she has she's like yeah i had mine removed and like i don't miss it a bit like it's fine and everyone's like oh my god you had yours removed like that's so strange she's like yeah it got gouged out you know i was mugged i guess that that'll be a thing people will steal your little inner computer so they can like steal your identity or whatever yikes yeah and the thing that's even crazier just speaking about insane technology and where it's headed I think it won't even need to be a computer that's like implanted into you physically somewhere on a, you know, a USB drive or a microchip or something. Soon enough, there's going to just be nanobots. They'll be able to just inject you with something and there'll be tiny little robots that can uh, do whatever they're programmed to do. Make you smarter, make you sick, kill you, poison you, Freaky. make you live longer eliminate cancer cells and dead cells and dead tissue and things like that. The way the future is going to look a hundred years from now is almost unfathomable. Really? It's hard to imagine how crazy the technology is going to be when you stop and look at what we already have today. And how quickly what we already have today is progressing. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a trip. The hockey stick curve of exponential technological change. Yes, absolutely. 
what do they say? Yeah, like, it's a crazy time. Every two years or every six months or something, computers get twice as fast. I can't remember what the Turing curve or something. I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure the actual stats on that, but I've, I've heard of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's a constant growth. Moore's law. Is the numbers of transistors on a microchip doubles every two years. Cost of halved. The long-winded way of saying that AI is getting smarter and smarter very quick. Yeah, I just saw some headline the other day. I didn't read the article, but <laughs> the headline was funny. It said, AI is now smart enough to be able to tell when it can't be trusted. Like, oh, perfect. That's what we need. It's robots that can tell when they're fucking with you. <laughs> uh, and then make the choice whether to do it or not. Yeah, that's giving them a little too much authority, I think. A little bit too much. Autonomy. But there was a time when there was no robots. There was no AI. And this was, a, I think, in a time of ancient homies. <laughs> exactly what we were getting at. How ancient are these homies? And who are these homies? And where did they come from? Uh, maybe they're nanobots, Dave. <laughs> I mean, do you think that technology might already exist? The nanotechnology with like nanobots for inside the body? Yeah. I think so. Could that not already exist and we're just nanobots in some larger system that is has its own thoughts and well, Ray Kurzweil has been talking about for a long time how there's going to be an internet of things and everything is going to be hooked up to internet and communicating with each other. And Assange, one of the last things he put out before his internet was cut off, he's talking about this smart dust that'll have nanotechnology in it and it'll be in everything. The internet of things that Kurzweil has talked about will become reality. And this nano dust that has these nanoparticles that are connected to internet and talking to each other will be in everything, even down to like the paint that's on the walls and people's houses. God. So it's just like an internet film, like fungus everywhere. Kind of. Yeah. The, they'll put it into all kinds of stuff. And what's crazy to think about is that's what the, some of the brainiacs already want to do. Uh, the singularity is what Kurzweil called it. That's right. Singularity. But some of the brainiacs already want this kind of stuff to happen. And then it's real interesting that we got this COVID-19 vaccine about to come out at the same time. Brainiacs want to put nanobots and nanotechnology and the internet of things into everything. I don't know. That is crazy shit. Uh, it should be noted that um, Kurzweil also developed a keyboard, electric keyboard. One of the best ones. Pretty. Uh, I like those kind of like, renaissance polymath people who are involved in many things such as yourself and such as actually one of my professors milford graves he's where i first heard of the singularity he has hanging up in his lab where everyone can see he has this piece of paper that just says the singularity is an era in which our intelligence will become increasingly non-biological and trillions of times more powerful than it is today the dawning of a new civilization that will enable us to transcend our biological limitations and amplify our creativity that was the one thing he printed out and put right on his computer where all his guests see it. So that's, <laughs> that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And that could tie right into the Neuralink and vaccinations and things like that. There's much to be 
uh, keeping your eyes open for today. That's for sure. Local graves would always say that too. It's better to know that you don't know than to not know. Sure. And it's very Socratic. Socrates said, the wisest man knows how little he knows. Wow. Love that. Was he Question. a... Was he a what? You've been getting Luke into the Stoics, and I've been hearing you talk about Stoicism in your podcast. Was Socrates a Stoic? Socrates is not traditionally known as one of the Stoic philosophers. He kind of predated a lot of the Stoics by quite some time, actually. But he's a legendary philosopher. And what's so interesting about Socrates to me is that nothing has ever been written by Socrates. There's no book by Socrates. There's no nothing. All of it was written by Plato, who said that Socrates said these things. So it's almost as if Socrates is like Jesus, like a mythological creature that other people wrote about, but you never hear anything that he actually said. Yeah, he said never to write anything down because words can't really define themselves later. I tried to think of that before I like send out a tweet or something. Never write anything down because words can't what? One of the reasons, he had a few reasons, but one that I remember is it's like words can't defend themselves later. Like your opinion might change, but you wrote that down. It's etched in stone. Um, sure. Write stuff down because you, you could change your mind later. So, you know, that's something that people should think of for sending off a knee-jerk tweet or whatever. Yeah, interesting thought. He was big into like not writing things down, as you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. I've never heard that before. Makes perfect sense. Um, that's one of few things I remember about him. Super cool. Yeah, you guys have a lot of often introspective lyrics, but also ones that I feel like look way beyond the self and look at big picture macro things that affect everybody in a pretty substantial way. I know that it's not on Ancient Homies, but your song Onlookers has some very relevant lyrics that when I listen to that song and I listen to the words, I'm like, fuck, this guy is writing shit like Havoc songs. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that I was listening to your, your new album the other day and like, yeah, the same, your lyrics are extremely relevant and they're the kind of things that I think need to be said and the questions that need to be asked in this world. Yeah, there's a lot of big questions that are not being discussed in the mainstream media avenue so I, I think that's where music and art really needs to step in and, and make a voice heard i wanted to what's that like when politicians and rulers and pundits and leaders and ceos aren't doing it right leave it to the musicians to like be the voice of reason yeah exactly uh <laughs> i i have to ask you about this song title there's a song on the record called egg time what is up with egg time uh, it's just breakfast. <laughs> That's what I thought, but uh, I wasn't sure how that came, <laughs> came about. For uh, our friend Supercilious, great producer and meme lord, um, he would just say egg time instead of breakfast, and it kind of stuck. <laughs> no lyrics in that one. The lyrics in that one are really heady, really trippy. Very philosophical and... When people listen to the record and get into egg time, they'll know what I'm saying. It's actually fun Easter egg. Uh -huh. That was an accident. Uh, the voice that goes egg time 
is actually David Attenborough. I found this old documentary of him searching for like an ostrich egg. I want to say it was in the African plains. Nice. Wherever he was. Yeah, that's great. Found one spot where he said egg and I took that. And then I f- luckily I found <laughs> time a little later. But no one would ever know that, but shout out David Attenborough because he's a powerful force of good in the world. Amazing. That's killer. Yeah, I was really not sure what it was because it's kind of got that robotic, uh, almost like vocoder distorted kind of sound. Yeah, so I downloaded also the word time off freesound.org, which is a great website for anyone who likes to collect sounds or make music or sample. Mm-hmm. So there is a robot voice going time layered in with his voice. Ah, okay. Cool. Now the world is making sense. But yeah, uh, I love your lyrics. I love the issues. They, I would agree it's this kind of macro, looking at the bigger picture, questioning things. I think that's really important to do. Um, yeah, I just uh, a, a lot of the things that consume my thought when I'm in my own head are not necessarily about me. They're about things that are going on on a way bigger level than my own life. Totally. Uh, we're so much more than just our individual experiences or our identities. That's actually in boundary dissolution. There's a light lyric at the end. Where it says, uh, I wake up alone. I've reassumed my form. I thought I'd cast aside the thick black shell I wore, which was sort of a reference to Ram Das saying that when he would come down from an acid trip, he would feel his identities sort of snake back into the room and bury themselves in him. And he's like, no, I want to be Ram Dass, the doctor. I don't want to be Ram Dass, the academic. I don't want to be Ram Dass, the, the uh, you know, 27-year-old male. Like, I, I want to strip all of that away and get to the, the essence, the source. That's really heavy. It's a heavy topic because I think psychedelics really do help to dissolve ego. And uh, after you're coming back into more of a normal state of mind you do have to pick up the pieces and like put the puzzle of yourself back together a little bit because you start to question a lot of things and you become more empathetic and more introspective and analytical about the way you behave and the way you are and the things you do the things you say that extra level of awareness is something that you you need to like (laughs) put, put yourself back together afterwards it's it's called the trip, and I think that's the perfect word for it. That's exactly what he sort of how he said it. He puts himself back together. He said he didn't like the yo-yo effect of constantly shedding his identity and his ego, and then having to come back to it. He said he felt like a yo-yo. I think that was in the "Be Here Now" book. Great book. Everyone should check out "Be Here Now" by Ram Dass. Doctor Richard Alpert. I don't know if you watched Lost, but uh, that's who that guy Richard Alpert was named after. Hmm. Okay. I should say that I think Ram Das, I think it was this year that he joined the, uh, the macro, as we've been saying. Um, yes. Shout out Ram Das. We look forward to joining you one day. Have you read any Terrence McKenna? Terrence McKenna, yes. I've read, uh, listened to hours upon hours of his speeches and lectures, but I've read uh, Food of the Gods. One of my favorite books ever. Name here, man. Shout out Bill Hicks for bringing that theory that we sort of evolved from apes who take, who took magic mushroom 
and that's where culture and comedy and all that thing. And shout out Bill Hicks for bringing that into the mainstream a little bit with his comedy routines. Yes. Yeah. Terrence McKenna. Anytime I'm reading his stuff, I, I read it with his voice in my head. Uh, he has a very particular cadence and rhythm to his speech. That's very uh, hard to forget. Must weigh the dose. Five. <laughs> Silent darkness, you have to weigh the dose. Some people, <laughs> and that's why they don't have elves in the attic and bats in the belfry like I do. That's a really good Terrence McKenna. <laughs> Listen to a little bit too much. No, there's no such thing as too much Terrence McKenna. I love, I love his way with words. I love he's a wordsmith, a poet. Um, he just articulates these hard to articulate things. I mean, it's not easy to describe a DMT trip at all. It's like a dream. It disappears. It vaporizes when you come out of it. But he does a pretty good job of wrestling that. Yeah, he's uh, very articulate and eloquent. Dreamly and well-read. and yeah, Super well-read. Yeah, I learned a lot of things reading Food of the Gods. Very, very good book. Your song, The Vessel, has some really great lyrics in it as well. What is The Vessel about? There's this guy, Kalindi Yee, I believe it's K-I-L-I-N-D-I, I was listening to a podcast with him. He, I think he was a buddy of Terrence McKenna's. He eats 40 to 50 grams of psilocybin. Now, the, the heroic dose, the Terrence five. heroic dose is five, yes. That's what you should eat in silent darkness if you really want to see what the fuck is going on. This dude, granted, he's a very large man, so, you know, there's tolerances and stuff. Uh, he eats 40 to 50 grams, and he says he just absolutely leaves this plane. He says, we are in a simulation, inside a simulation, built by someone, somewhere. Like, there's more to reality than what we think it is. And I just thought that was the craziest, coolest shit I'd ever heard. <laughs> so wow, that is, that is so much mushrooms. <laughs> incomprehensible he does say like it's incapacitating he has to uh you know lay down and getting to the bathroom is a chore yeah that's we don't recommend that folks yeah if you're eating 40 grams of mushrooms i would imagine you have to lie down (laughs) (laughs) but yeah he leaves this plane and that's sort of i think what inspired there's feel something not just what's in between your ears yeah sort of what what spurred the lyrics i guess there's some nods to astronomical bodies in there. Cassius and Vega. Yeah. At the helm. So that's also a nod to uh, our boy Clayton, your friend. Uh, he used to drive our van, which was called the Vessel. Uh, we called him Cashew's Clay, Cassius. He became Cassius Intrepid, or Cassius of Vega at the helm. Vega. Is- oh. Yeah, but that is a space name, right, Cassius? Yeah, and Vega is a star. Yes, and Vega is one of the closer stars. It's 26 light years, which is insane distance. But uh, Yeah, it's one of the brightest ones in the sky. So it's, even though that's an insane distance, it's actually pretty close to Star And that's where uh, Carl Sagan's book, Contact, that's where the protagonist uh, travels to. Mm-hmm. Shout out Carl Sagan, Ithaca, New York. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Carl Sagan's book, A Demon Haunted World, is one of my favorites as well. Red, I think we talked a lot about the lyrics, but you have very interesting guitar playing 
and your use of looping is super impressive and adds a huge layer of denseness density to the band what made you want to start doing all the loop stuff and and utilizing all your pedals in such unusual ways because your guitar playing and the way you set things up you guys don't sound like three people and your guitar often doesn't even sound like a guitar so what started you off in that direction security (laughs) with three guys sometimes it's hard to make it sound full and like bandy and Mm -hmm. so the first day i realized you could use a dd5 to record a snippet of a chord and like freeze a chord of course there's the freeze pedal now but i didn't have that when i was coming up back in 2006 the first time I realized you could freeze a chord and then noodle over it, I was like, holy fuck, it's like we have a fourth member. So that's just like you said, yeah, we try to sound like more than three people. You guys do an excellent job at it. I've never seen another band that has only three people that sounds as big as you guys. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really amazing to see live. And do you guys have anything planned for live i know you guys have done some stuff during this whole lockdown situation you're one of the few bands i've seen that's been playing any shows yeah we've been extremely lucky in that we live close and that we all kind of are in the same covid bubble and have been since well 15 years but since march so we were very lucky that we could still rehearse and record and write and we did a live score to the cabinet of dr caligari up on cape cod that was really fun really taught us a lot about supporting imagery with sound. It's a totally different thing than just composing music for dancers or for fans. And then we got to do some scoring for Vice for their new series, which you would love. It's super dark. It's source material. It's all found footage from people's cell phones and stuff. But center each episode is a different crisis. Like one is the Filipino drug war. One is a crisis in Syria. One is the bushfires in Australia super dope show that's coming out that we got to do some music for. And both those things helped us really expand and learn a new avenue. Cause like I said, it's a very different thing to you're making something that needs to fit with what's on the screen. Right. Yeah. You need to play a feeling. Yeah. That matches with somebody else that, that's uh, <laughs> not musical. <laughs> Exactly. And where is, who says what feeling gets what sound? Where's the agreed upon universality of that? There's some flexibility, you know, you could put a few different things over a certain scene, but there's some things that just would not fit or would be inappropriate. So yeah, it's a very interesting realm to sort of explore. Yeah. Like you don't want to have the bushfires in Australia playing with Benny Hill music. (laughs) Exactly. And what is it about that tempo and that melody that conveys humor and joviality. Isn't that interesting? That, that musical rhythms and motifs yeah. that written into our language and our body language and how we speak, that shit is fascinating to me. Like that's so human. Yeah, I, I listen to a lot of music that actually makes me laugh. Some of it because the talent level is just so insane. I don't know what else to do other than smile and laugh at it. Yes. But sometimes I listen to things, especially like some classical music, there's some like gallops and like Russian music and shit where just the music alone is 
funny. It makes me laugh. And there's no lyrics at all. There's no other things going on other than notes, music notes. And I'm, I'm laughing, cracking up at things. I find that fascinating as well. But I notice often it's very staccato things, quick notes, sharp things. And uh, I think maybe that has something to do with Looney Tunes. We all grew up watching these cartoons that have amazing scoring, really fast, like pretty much shredding orchestral music in the background when uh, Sylvester the cat is falling down the staircase or Bugs Bunny is chasing Daffy Duck. The music is amazing and a lot of it's very upbeat and pretty staccato. That's so interesting. You're absolutely right. Yeah, like quick vibraphone licks. and Yeah, I think maybe it's planted in our subconscious just from that kind of stuff, that upbeat, major melody, staccato music is associated with funny things. That's incredible. So you think that's possibly a learned association rather than like writ in our DNA innate association, that quick staccato quirky rhythms are sort of topical. It could be something that's kind of learned from us being children, but it's got to be even deeper than that because before those cartoons existed, they chose, somebody chose to put that kind of music into the cartoon. Yes. So, yeah, I, I think it is really interesting, though, that there are certain kinds of music that will literally just make people laugh without aid from an actor or a video or anything. That is fascinating, yeah. And I definitely know what you mean about seeing someone who's so good that it just it's just stupid good that you just laugh. Yes, and a severe betrayal of expectations also makes me laugh in music. If I, if I think the song is going this way and then all of a sudden they like do something crazy and it totally takes a right turn, that cracks me up when a song is completely unpredictable. We kept getting tagged to this video of this gent band, but they would like break into like a jazz swing breakdown, totally crushing gent. And then all of a sudden like, it was hilarious, that contrast. Yes. I love Mr. Oh. Bungle and Frank Zappa for that reason. Oh, of course. Yep. A lot of genre changes on the dime. Yes. And it's a comedy act. <laughs> uh, Captain Beefheart, that kind of shit. It's like almost like they're trying to be bad. Like they're really good at their instruments, but they like, <laughs> that's amazing. That's so next level. Yeah. I love that stuff. A lot of funny vocals and that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> yeah, man, I, I really love your record. And I'm stoked for people to finally get to hear this stuff. I heard the first bits of it, like, you know, a year before the release here. And it's great. It exceeded my expectations of what y'all's new record would sound like. And I'm very, very proud and honored that I was able to get a chance to work with you guys on it. Yeah, we're very, very stoked that you uh, mixed it. And we definitely want you to mix the next one because that was also defied expectations you really made the thing soar and slam thanks i I really appreciate the kind words i'd love to do the next one sounds like a good time yeah we're planning on it well hell yeah dude is there anything else that you want to say to the people before we wrap it up uh everybody go check out havoc listen to their dope lyrics dope riffs dope fucking drummer your drummer is fucking fanatical how like does he just come off stage just like Give me a sec. Pretty much, yeah. He's in really good shape, but yeah, it's a workout playing that stuff. 
athlete? He, I mean, the way he drums, he's practically an athlete. Yeah. He just plays music instead of sports. Does he like run or something? You say he's in good shape. Like, I could tell. Like He lifts a lot of weights and drums a lot. You don't need to really go running if you uh, play music like that. No one ever a couple hours a day. I was watching videos of him playing. I was like, this is full calisthenic like workout. Like he's sweating. He's using his entire body. That should be like a gym workout. This should be like a fucking electronic drum kit and like in a gym. <laughs> like a spin class, but it's a electronic drum class. And on that point, the last thing I'll say is that I think all gyms in America should be hooked up to power generators. I know you're big into Tesla. <laughs> it's a waste. We're just in there lifting iron up and down, achieving nothing. If, if, if we were generating electricity with all that, come on. Yeah, I'm totally into it. So we clearly have way more we could talk about. So I hope you'll uh, be on my podcast sometime. Yeah, man. I would love to chat again. It's always really, really good talking to you. Yeah, and, right. and everyone listening, I know... Johnny just said to listen to Havoc, but you really should listen to La Special and their new record, Ancient Homies. This is a podcast that's all about the ancient homies, and I really appreciate you spending the time, taking a chunk out of your day to chat with me here, dude. Anytime, man. I love hanging with you. It's great to talk. Yes! Curse your die, motherfucker! No, no cursing on this podcast, so come on, watch your fucking mouth. Yeah, I'm going to go listen to the rest of uh, episode 10 with the dude, homeboy from Sepultura. I can't wait to finish that. He's really down to earth, dude. That's another thing, dude. Metal dudes, like you think metal dudes are so badass and scary. They're some of the nicest motherfuckers in the world. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really nice people that, um, you know, people would get on the other side of the sidewalk, other side of the street to walk by them. But if you talk to them, they're teddy bears. Totally. So that's cool. Thanks for being a nice dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying <laughs> cheers Johnny well that's it for the La Special special thanks a lot for tuning in everybody if you have any questions or comments for the show please write them to podcast at riffsordie.com and take a look at the Patreon page patreon.com slash riffsordie if you're interested in getting bonus episodes of this show live hangouts on zoom handwritten lyrics discounts in the web store and a bunch of goodies like that. Go check out La Special's new record, Ancient Homies, and let me know what you think of the mix. If you'd like to talk to me about mixing or mastering work for your project, feel free to hit me up. Contact info is on riffsordie.com. Feel free to drop me a line. I'd love to talk to you about working on your project. Enjoy the rest of your week, everybody. I'll talk to you all soon. Take care. Bye-bye.